Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Today, we're discussing one of the most controversial figures in Russian history— Grigory Rasputin. Our main sources are going to be two biographies. The first is by the history professor Joseph T. Furman and is very carefully sourced. The second is by Rasputin's own daughter, Maria Rasputin, who lived with him in St. Petersburg and had a great deal of first-hand knowledge of what happened in her father's life. Furman looks askance at some of what Maria Rasputin has to say because of her perspective, which is naturally biased by her relationship with her father, but she also had this access to details of Rasputin's life, details that were never recorded by anyone except her. So, naturally, those details are themselves subject to some doubt because they come largely from Grigory Rasputin's own stories about himself that he shared with his daughters, But uh, that doesn't mean that they're untrue. So so I've had to make some judgment calls about how to present Rasputin to you today, but I have tried to qualify our sources when necessary. Uh, And and I'm sitting here, it's just me and and your metallurgic prophet, Brie Litterall. Hey, guys. How's it going? And Brie, (laughs) you read the uh, Maria, you read the Maria book, right? Yeah, it was... It was really good and also quite heartbreaking. Yeah, and and I so. read the Furman, so we're, we're basically like we merged these the two readings to get to today's episode. <laughs> and so, without further ado, do uh, we bring you the strange history of the most powerful advisor to the last czar of Imperial Russia, Rasputin? Mm. How do you say Rasputin? Like I always want to say Rasputin. Like you Rasputin. have to say. Oh, <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I feel like you have to have, like, an intonation. Rasputin. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> you want me to get angry about yeah. it? <laughs> I, you feel like you have to. You can't just, like, walk around casually saying his name. I feel like everyone yeah. in Russia at that time period was saying his name like that. Rasputin! Well, probably because they either... Well, there's a lot of reasons they might say that. We'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. All righty. Uh, let's pledge it out. We the members... Of the the secret order of alchemical actors actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling telling of the history of the the occult occult as far as we know it. it. And we dove right in. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson. That's Brie Litterall right there with me, the uh, metallurgic prophet, like I said. Yep. I'm your supreme hierophant. Uh, Let's go ahead and open up that order of confessors, Brie, with any sound that inspires you. Um... That'll actually do. Uh, we'll take that. Yeah, that's good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, just a couple of folks to welcome to our patrons today. We got Kurt S., brand new patron. We got a pledge bump from uh, Chandra L. And uh, we got a nice message from Nico253. Says we're binge worthy and has made us a regular part of workplace listening and sending love yet again to all the folks leaving us stars on the big Spotify's. Uh, it, it is the, the major platform for us. It's where most of our listeners sit. iTunes is a distant second. Uh, so it really does help because uh, when folks discover the show, it, it's nice for them to see a nice good rating and nice for them to see that many, many people have uh, weighed in on the quality of the show. So thank you, our anonymous star givers. You can close us up, Brie. I am now closing the plugs. They are closed. Very nice. See that? You were prepared for the second part. I was. I was ready. <laughs> All righty. Here we go. This is a big story. Are you ready for this? We're going to spend a couple hours on this today. Oh, I'm ready, Rob. <laughs> All righty. Uh, and it, the complexities of it, we let the voice boys have the day off because, uh, you know, we're just going to try and make sense oh. of this, guys. Yeah, I, I, I like the voice stuff. I, I really do. But sometimes when things are really tricky, I, I, I also don't know if any of the boys have a really convincing Russian accent. <laughs> Oh, no, I wouldn't give it to them. I wouldn't let them try. No offense, guys. Love you. But all the love but <laughs> we're gonna we're just gonna try <laughs> go and very wrong it, it's it's such a weird and complicated story that i think it's better that you just hear me and brie trying to talk through 
what happened? Who is this yeah. guy? Real chill uh, episode today, but also not. It's going to be kind of very tolling on the brain, probably a little bit in the soul. Who is the man who inspired the old Rasputin beer? That's what everyone wants to know. Did he? Did he <laughs> old him? Rasputin? I mean, he must have in some way, right? <laughs> He's, I probably by rumor, I would imagine. He's the namesake. It's a pretty intense yeah. beer, too. Is it really? I've had it once, maybe once or twice. My uh, One of my mentors in grad school who just passed, Catherine Schuller, she uh, drank Old Rasputin. She didn't drink often or a lot because she's just a tiny woman. But uh, yeah, she would, she would drink because she was a Russian scholar. So she would drink Old Rasputin. Yeah, you got to stick with gotta, it, I guess. Beyond brand, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Grigory Rasputin was born on the 9th of January, 1869, to a family of Siberian peasants. So not not your rich kid from day one here. He was in the village of Pokrovskoy. Now, you, you've got some Russian pronunciation, right, Bri? Uh, so, wait, can I, I need to look at the, I'm going to open my notes real quick, because okay. I need to look at the spelling, because... Pokrovskoy. Um, I don't, I've heard it said differently, but I need oh, to look okay. at it to make sure I'm not saying his future wife's name instead of the town he grew <laughs> up in, because they're very similar. Oh, um, yeah, that's true. This was in Siberia while Bree's pulling this up, so. So it was in the, the frozen tundra of Russia, not a, not a particularly uh, hospitable location. There's a lot of farming going on there, so I guess it's not quite as cold and desolate as people imagine, but still... Uh, a rougher part of the country nature-wise. All right, what do you got? Oh, okay. How did you say it? I said Pokrovskoy. Yeah, no, yeah. I would say that too, probably looking at it now. <laughs> okay. Pokrovskoy. Okay. His name was taken from the mystic St. Gregory of Nysa, whose feast day was on the 10th of January. So that's where we get Grigori. Legend tells that a shooting star streaked across the sky at the moment he was born. I think that comes from Maria. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rasputin, so it's something I'm sure he said about himself. Um, he didn't speak until he was two and a half and was fearful of shadows. So that's a long time, two and a half. My kids spoke at like, well, they have a lot to say, but they all spoke before their first year. <laughs> so he was a quiet kid. Uh, but he grew to become a well-behaved child. He had his first encounter with an otherworldly entity he called the Pretty Lady when he was sick in bed. You know, and let me just say, uh, scholars, for the most part, don't have accounts or documents of Rasputin's childhood. So this is all pretty much Maria. This is, this is a gray area or a, a black area for, for most uh, scholarship. So this is all coming from Bree's research. Mm -hmm. She appeared at his bedside. And he was quickly cured. This pretty lady. Oh, sorry, I interrupted myself there. So he is, he's not feeling well and he's in bed and he's visited by the pretty lady. And uh, this female, right? This female spirit of some kind, the Holy Mother, whoever, is going to be with him, right, Bree, for his whole life? Yeah? Yeah, basically. There's times, of course, when he he goes through, you know, trials and tribulations where she's not there and he's trying to, you know, get back into his holiness or whatever he thinks wrong with him but yeah she's the constant figure that comes to him throughout his entire life spiritually she this his her presence or absence is uh very monumental for the, for him mm -hmm. um so this figure a constant in his life served as a messenger of god uh, and he called her the holy mother he also called her the virgin of kazan 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 yeah kazan is how i read it so that's right. what i'm pretty sure it is and that's is that local to pokrovskoy you know i didn't quite look into it too much because it was just it was a lot for me to do to do the notes on for the book itself but um i am assuming so because later in the readings um it's said very casually as if that is like the the usual reference of like basically like the the holy mother the virgin mother type of thing situation yeah yeah so our, our lady of, you know, this town. Yeah. After this visitation, Rasputin began to exhibit his own healing abilities. So he was healed, and now he begins to be able to heal. On learning of a horse who was limping, he went to the animal, put his hand on its leg, and told the horse, You're all better now. 
and the horse's lip was cured. There's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. he's, a, he's a simple man. He gets right to the point. No fancy incantations or anything. Just... He is a child, too, at this point. Oh, that's you know? true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he shouldn't be speaking Latin at the horse or anything. Yeah. The horse only speaks Russian. Uh, Rasputin? Only Russian. <laughs> oh, it's a Russian horse. Russian. Why would you, why would you speak horse. Latin to a Russian horse? Rasputin also developed psychic and clairvoyant abilities. Uh, so he says he could predict when a stranger was coming to town the day before the stranger arrived. I'm guessing like he would go around telling everyone a stranger is coming. And then he could prove that he knew. He could anticipate when someone would die. And he could tell, he says, when a person was lying. Mm-hmm. He could. That's kind of scary. He could sense. It's a big thing, yeah. Oh, yeah. Him, it's the lying thing, especially as a kid. Well, I'm sure it happens a lot in, in town and everything. And he gets caught up in mm-hmm. situations where people are lying. Mm-hmm. He could sense when someone had stolen something, and the first miracle associated with him uh, was when he identified a horse thief who the bil- village promptly exiled. So he like pointed to this this guy right on the street or something. Yeah, and he was like, uh, dude's got the, the horse. The way I he doesn't know it. Yeah, the way I remember the scene is like all these men were like arguing about who the horse thief was yeah. and, and he just like pointed. He just yeah, he was like he indicated. Yeah, it was like a weird argument thing and everybody was like It's who's, who's the, horse, the thief? horse thief? Is it that yeah. is it, it's gotta be uh, I can't think of it. Vladimir. No, it is <laughs> it is Joseph. I'm only it's I can Joseph. only think of you can only think of communist leaders yeah that's all i can think yeah of. basically that it checks out <laughs> well i guess i could go through all the the chekhovian names um yeah yeah <laughs> this was all during his childhood and preteen years these abilities disappeared temporarily after his brother passed away by the way uh his brother passed away it was a cold day and they had both fallen into the river while they were playing they took sick both boys but Rasputin's 10-year-old sibling did not recover, uh, unlike Rasputin, who did. And this pitched young Rasputin into a depression that deprived him of his miraculous skills. Um, And when they came back, they were not as intense as they had been before. So we get through childhood, and we're on to age 14, getting into our early teens. He became obsessed with religion, And he found God, concluding that God was, I'm quoting here, within him and all living beings. Yeah, it was a really interesting part of the book, reading about uh, uh, the unfortunate death of his brother and then his obsession with God. Like, it was to the point where his parents were like, yo, kid, you gotta, like, do the farm work. And also, uh, God's not within you, that's blasphemy. But he was at a sermon that was like, god is within you like and within all living beings like you know that's how we can not become godly because that is blasphemy (laughs) according to you know religion at the time but you know be um a good good religious people (laughs) the omnipresence of god yeah yeah it seems like an odd idea to consider blasphemous but i i understand there's that fear of Mm self-deification he began to meditate seeking the inner temple where he and God could meet. And and yeah, like Bree's saying, this becomes an issue because he, he becomes like monomaniacal about it. He's obsessed. He's mm-hmm. laser-like focused on this and doesn't want to do other things. But you have to when you're yeah. a Siberian peasant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've got jobs, man. Family's going to starve. Uh, but he became fearful of these exercises and withdrew from them. So he prayed, repenting of his fear but he could not resume this spiritual work. His mother told him his meditations were blasphemy. (laughs) His his father said they distracted, as Bree's saying, from the work. But God was Rasputin's only friend. The other children sensed that he was different and bullied and fought him. He fought back only once and discovered that fighting distanced him further from God, and so according to the man himself, he never did it again. Although... He certainly is going to be in some altercations in his adult life. Yeah, yeah. All right, now let's get into some weird sex stuff. Uh, so if, and if you thought this oh, was like going to be a, a boring old, I don't even know, not boring, but if this if this was all going to be about Russian politics and <laughs> magic. No, well, no, no. This no. chapter was... 
a wild ride. Yeah, there's some sex stuff. Yeah, I don't have all the details here, Bree. So anything you want to, you know, you think we're, I, I didn't, I should have included. You're welcome to to okay. add. So yeah. at the age of six, because I'm not, I'm also not doing all the weird encounters. I'm just trying to pick the ones that were most plausible uh, to me. <laughs> and because uh, I feel like there's a couple that are like, this is the most monumentous, like, yeah, clearly affected him in one way or another. So when he was 16 years old, hopping forward a couple of years again. He had a pair of sexual encounters that he said distanced him from God. Or Maria says this. So again, we, if we're taking it from Maria, I personally imagine that the man himself told this story to his daughter. This I'm is like, how he saw himself. Daughter, the story. I just don't. <laughs> how else would she know, though? Right? I mean, I know it is weird yeah, when you all hear. I mean, like, <laughs> you guys don't know what we're about to talk about here, but it's sex. So you have to imagine, but how else would she know, right, Bree? Like, he I know, has to come from him. I, well, I feel like to tell such an elaborate lie that's, like, weird and sexual to your child is kind of strange. Because she would have been young when she heard this story, because he unfortunately died rather early in her life. Like, I just feel like to lie about something like that, what's the point in, in lying to your daughter with that sort of why i don't know there's got to be some truth to it or else i don't see the point in telling your daughter this type of story he, he probably figured there was a lesson he was fairly forthright about these things that's true that's true while delivering grain uh to the nearby city of tumen yeah tumen yeah yeah he encountered irina danilova the beautiful wife of a general and was smitten with her on his next trip to tumen the following month, he saw Irina Danilova again, and she invited him to meet her at her summer house. There, he says, she seduced him and got him to strip away his clothes, following her into a room where her servant suddenly popped out from behind the furniture and began flogging him. <laughs> well, okay, so the way this read was like, Ooh, spicy, strange, erotica novel, and then sudden sexual assault. It was like weird. It was it was not. Yeah. It was like weird. It, it was a very. At first, it seemed to be like a oh spicy first encounter, like ah lady, and then it was like oh um I don't like this. I'm scared. Please stop. Is what it became, and I was like oh that that took an uncomfortable turn okay it's almost it's almost like one of those 80s movies where the guys are doing something pervy they're like spying on the girls or something and then they fall through the floor and the girls start you know yes. railing on them yeah but, but like sexually yeah yeah, weird. yeah rasputin Ugh. felt shamed embarrassed and deeply violated by this experience but it was not the last of his sexual misadventures and that is a, a wild understatement Shortly after his encounter with the general's wife, a widow named Natalia Petrovna was caught having sex with a vagabond. The town punished her by stripping her naked and forcing her to walk the streets tied behind a horse, beating her as she walked. Sounds a little bit like Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Rasputin sympathized, sensing the similarity between her torture and his, and he followed her and cut her loose and healed her wounds. I'm assuming after the town, like, they were done with her. They left her Yeah, bruised. it was like the middle of the night, and he yeah. found her by, followed her, and then took her down to the river and was like, I gotta clean your wounds. I'm like, sorry, I gotta touch you, but, like, you're gonna get infected and die if I don't do this, so. So they just sort of left her somewhere curled up yeah, in a corner. Yeah, Yeah. Pretty awful. Yeah. She offered to have sex with him. But he delayed initiating a relationship with her until after her wounds were healed. So oh, that was bold of her. <laughs> yeah, I that that weirded me out a little bit. I was like, what? What are we doing? This bruised okay. and bleeding woman. Then one night, while drinking with some of the men in the village, one of his companions expressed the desire to have sex with a woman. Presumably any woman. Right then and there, though. Rather than leave his friend womanless, a drunk Rasputin led him to the drinking, led him and the drinking party, bunch of men, uh, to see Natalia Petrovna. But when they arrived, he was suddenly struck by the immorality of his act. He had, after all, nearly facilitated a gang rape, uh, so he put a stop to it. This, he says, or says his daughter, was a low point for him, and he resolved to recommit and reconnect himself to God. A miraculous spiritual rebirth followed. One day, while plowing the fields, he was visited by the Holy Mother. But this rebirth proved to be more of a dead end than anything else. Lacking any teacher for his mystical experiences and failing to work at them, his mysticism dissipated. 
and he spent his time at the tavern, dancing with the Romani, who, he said, never tired of dancing. Mm-mm. I mean, this is the push and pull, too. Uh, he's... He, this is like to me this is like a very early pattern we see the pattern beginning to emerge sex alcohol spirituality in that order and they just keep looping back over and over yeah it seems like a long struggle until he comes to a conclusion later on in his life not super later on like once he's like trying to find god and just forcing everything down that he wants to do outside of that because he thinks it's sinful and then eventually comes to realization that we'll get to but it's rough it's rough it was rough to read the back and forth of like dude like you're just like it's just not healthy for you he met his wife from what i understand or from what i can tell from the story of rasputin a a truly incredible human being uh preskovia fedbrovna dubrovina Mm-hmm. Yeah, feel all right. Yeah, yeah. He met her while visiting the Znamensky Zno- Monastery near Tobolsk. Still good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> she was twenty. <laughs> uh, she was twenty, which you know she's like an old lady still because she was still unmarried. She was anxious for a husband. You got to get married like seventeen in the old days. Yeah, yeah. Even younger, probably. They married just after Rasputin's eighteenth birthday, so she's a little bit older than he is. Not much. She gave birth to a son and twins who died in infancy, uh, but then she gave birth to three children who survived. They were Dimitri, Maria, who we've been talking about, and Varvara. One more child, a daughter, died of whooping cough within three months of birth. So they ended up having three children. There were two versions of how Rasputin made his first extended departure from his Siberian home. His daughter Maria says that Rasputin began to pray again, feeling that he was not as illuminated as he had been before. He started having visions again of the Virgin Mother, but he didn't know how to pursue his mysticism. One day he met a student from the monastery at Verkotur? Verkotur? Verkotur. Yeah, I did a French thing with it the first time. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Oh. Verkotor. Yeah. Well, at that monastery, met a student, asked the student for some advice. How, how can I find my, my spiritual path? He's always asking people this around this, this stage of his life, right? Yeah. The student said Rasputin should come back with him to the monastery where he could train himself, uh, Rasputin that was, that is, could train himself to further pursue his visions. Just come hang out at the monastery for a while. We'll get you straight. He was torn about leaving his family, but his wife sensed that there was something deeply troubling her husband and asked him about it. When he explained about his visions and his feeling that he must go to the monastery, she said, You gotta do what you gotta do, man. You gotta do what you feel is right, and go if that is what is best. That's why I said this is one heck of a woman. She is this entire time. Like, I'm like, all right, Praskovia, let's go. <laughs> I mean, I she's a Siberian peasant, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, Rasputin's going to be making bank and sending it home. But at this point, how how she even can survive and do all the labor required without a second, yeah. without a partner? I mean, it's incredible. She just says, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll make sure that nobody starves here. She's like, I'll hold the fort down. Yeah. Going, babe, let's go. <laughs> All right. So this is the version that, that uh, Bree read. The second version comes from our scholar, uh, and he says uh, that Rasputin and his friends were accused and tried for stealing horses. <laughs> yeah, much less. Yeah. Much, not, not so oh, friendly my. story. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's so different. Yeah. I mean, you could understand why he might tell his daughter something else. His friends were exiled, but Rasputin, whose guilt was less obvious than his confederates, made a deal with the court and volunteered to go on a pilgrimage. I think I've heard this version of the story, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a certain amount of sense, and he's a little scamp. He does Mm -hmm. get into trouble. Uh, He did have some issues with stealing, I, I guess. Well, I don't... Did he? Did he steal? I... God, I, I read some hit and miss, and I've heard some hit and miss stuff on that when he was younger. It felt like that there was some things saying that when he was going to the bars and stuff, yeah. he was occasionally like 
it was like an alcohol thing. He but... drank a lot. So he drank a lot and then he mm-hmm. did stupid things. Yeah. Especially when he's surrounded by all these other dudes, right? So he, all these right. other dudes, he, he nearly initiates this, this gang rape of this woman. All these other dudes, uh, you can imagine a scenario where they're like, let's steal a horse. And he's like, yeah, and off they go. Yeah, and he's like, let's go. <laughs> but it wasn't really his idea. So the court says, uh, all right, fine. You go on a pilgrimage. We won't exile you from, from your home. In any case, whichever version of the story is true, my man left. At the monastery of St. Nicholas at Verkotur, he was accepted and did very well. But he lacked a true holy man who could help him understand his visions. So he leaves for this pilgrimage, goes to the monastery. I, I just imagine him like sitting in an empty room and trying to get in touch with the visions. He's like... He's like- Damn, I need a holy man, a true holy man right now. <laughs> the monks keep coming by and and he's like, hey, can you help me out here? And they're like, yeah, just, you know, we don't really do visions here. That's sort of your thing. We did, so you, you, yeah. good, good luck, man. He's like, but you brought me here. You told me, let's go figure out my visions. So I'm here. <laughs> so one of his fellow students told him of a man named Makari. Makari. Makari? Hmm. Anyway. This was a holy man who lived nearby. Makari was an ascetic who wore a chain to mortify the flesh. So I guess it was a heavy chain. Or maybe I don't add barbs on it or something. And a mystic who had developed his own following. Makari became a mentor to Rasputin, and Rasputin went back to village life. So he goes to the monastery, tries to have visions. The visions don't come. Or I guess they do come. He doesn't understand them. I don't know. The vision thing is not quite working out for him at the monastery. He says, I need a holy man. Finds a holy man and says, screw you, monastery. I'm going home. Mm-hmm. Doesn't need the monastery anymore. Got his mentor. Has this relationship. He can go back to work in the fields with his wife. Back in Siberia, he has another vision of the virgin while working the fields. And he determines to set out on yet another pilgrimage. This one much longer. From Siberia through Ukraine to the center of Eastern Orthodoxy in Greece at the monastery at Mount Mount Athos. Whoa. He is going for yeah, a walk. That's a, gotta get those walking boots on because that's a lot. And that he is, he's going to walk it, right? He's like Forrest Gump. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. for walking. But for walking. <laughs> it took him two years to complete the journey to Mount Athos and back. So a year there and a year back. But the monastery itself didn't impress him. Um, (laughs) He witnessed monks (laughs) engaged in openly gay relationships and brought the story back to his mentor, Makari. And Makari told him that God does not dwell in the monastery, information he probably should have shared before Rasputin set out on a two-year journey to a monastery. That's like some Zen master stuff, right? <laughs> Let you go yeah. walk for two years. Only to yeah, find no. out that all the monks are sleeping together. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, let me be clear. We're here on the show. We love gay people. but you're... Monks, you can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. I mean, in theory. And if that's, you're really supposed that's to be celibate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's true. I guess as a monk. Yeah, so... <laughs> gay... But we don't judge it. No, we don't. <laughs> Gay, straight, whatever, enjoy yourself. But yeah, if you're a monk and you're supposed to be celibate, you're going to disappoint Rasputin. You got to be careful of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During his travels between monasteries, Rasputin prayed for another vision of Mary, but instead of seeing the virgin, he was visited by images of a nude woman and tempted by urges of the flesh. Here we go again. Mm -hmm. We're getting back to Rasputin after dark. Maria tells the possibly apocryphal tale of how he stopped and stayed with a woodcutter and his wife I, oh god i forgot about this yeah this is <laughs> this is practically like a fairy tale so it's like a it, sexy fairy tale it's so weird like i'm in these this people's woodcutter cabin in the woods and i'm a stranger and i'm gonna sleep with someone yes. <laughs> like weird erotica thing yeah it, it does it feels it feels like you're watching it, re- it read that way it's like, like softcore porn read. Yes, yes. It's most of this book. <laughs> yes, we're just looking for the right German director to adapt this into a, <laughs> a short movie. 
So while her husband was asleep, we're at the woodcutter. Here's Rasputin, poor innocent little Rasputin, wandering into the woodcutter's house with his wife. And while the husband is asleep, the woman decides she's going to take a bath in front of Rasputin. Uh, Rasputin is going to pretend to sleep, uh, and he believed, though, that she was enticing him to sex, so she took a very sexy bath. And then an image of the virgin on the wall called to him to stay chaste, and he resisted this temptress. The next morning, he awoke to the sound of birds having sex. Wait, you missed the oh. best part of that story is that she was mad, so she stormed off and proceeded to have extremely loud sex oh, with her Oh, yeah, that's right. I did leave that up. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's where the German director can really go wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the next morning, he wakes up. He, he hears birds having sex out in the trees, uh, and this prompts a kind of spiritual revelation for him. He decides that sex wasn't wrong if such innocent creatures as birds could enjoy it without guilt. He then saw a group of women swimming naked nearby, which was convenient, and he joined them and had sex with them. I assume he means all of them. I imagine this is yeah. like 12 naked ladies, and he's... It, it read as like two or three. Oh, well, that's sure. disappointing. Yeah, it was just like a couple. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> he just, he's just working his way through all the ladies. Yeah, no, the book really took a turn when it was like, ah, oh, yes, this beautiful spiritual moment about these birds. If these innocent things can fornicate with such glee, why can't I and not feel guilty about it? And it's like, oh, there's some naked ladies. Let me go have sex with them. How convenient. I was, like, oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. This is a way for me to exercise my new belief system. I believe the bird part in this situation. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Maybe there yeah. was one naked lady, or maybe it was actually the woodcutter's wife. Anyhow. Maybe, yeah, maybe he went back to their house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or she was. She just decided to go out and have a, I don't know, a bath in the spring. Right, right. The point is, uh, this sex with these naked ladies in the stream allowed him a spiritual opening, and he was able finally to fully pray. And this is where his philosophy of spiritual awakening through sexual assuagement was born. That again is sexual assuagement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coming soon to yeah. HBO. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Skinamax. Rasputin came to believe that God would not ask humans to repress their desires since God had implanted those desires in humans. Sex wasn't wrong, and so the desire should be sated in order to attend to spiritual things. Right on, Rasputin. Rasputin's perspective on the intersection of sex and spirituality was further clarified by his engagement with a Clisty or Clisty sect. What's your preference, Brie? Uh, Clisty. It reminds me of the clitoris, so... For good reason. Yeah. Rasputin was often accused of being one of the Clisti, but he never formally joined them. The Clisti had split from the Orthodox Church and practiced feeling the Holy Spirit come among them by gathering for ecstatic dance and prophesying in tongues. They were fairly ascetic and fasted in preparation for their rites, as well as engaging in self-flagellation. Nothing very sexy about any of that, right? But <laughs> there, there were some fringe orders of the sect who practiced holy intercourse. Yikes. And it was one of, <laughs> yikes, and it was one, one of these that Rasputin claimed to have encountered. He, he came out, he, he, well, he wasn't hanging out with the, you know, prophesying, self-flagellating guys. He was with the holy intercourse guys. Mm. He attended a meeting at which the members stripped naked, danced until they collapsed, and then had sex with whoever was nearest them. Yeah. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, though. Like, if you dance until you collapse, how do you then have the energy for sexing? It was described as a nude frenzy, so I guess they were working themselves up to it. I don't really know. It didn't sound sexy uh, at all. That it makes sounded more sense. uncomfortable, because it's like, you just end up with whoever you land with? Like, what if it's, like, <laughs> ugly Jim from down the road? Like, I don't... <laughs> Well, maybe like if you feel the mood in the room is hitting a certain point, you like try to get close to someone you would not have mind having. Yeah, uh, yeah, with. I feel like that. That's a lot of discourse and the uh, the orgy. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex. Pre yeah. There's no orgy that doesn't have a complex discourse, I believe. That's true. 
at first, um, what was I say? So the Kleisti believed sex was sinful, uh, but that by sinning, they threw themselves at the mercy of God's grace, which was a deeply spiritual experience. It's a little like the Aghoris the, the, uh, of the Hindu sect who believed that uh, it's sort of a tantric belief that you can, uh, by breaking with the religious rules, you humble yourself. I guess, but they didn't seem really humbled in the reading that I did. They just seemed to be using it as an excuse to have really weird group sex. I think Rasputin ultimately agrees with you. Yeah. He found these rites inspiring, but concluded that the priests were only using the women in the sect. So, similar idea to what what you're up to. Mm. Although, I guess you're open to the women using the, the men yeah, I mean, as well. I guess, yeah, yeah. Bishop Anthony of Tobolsk sought to prove that Rasputin was some sort of Klisti sect leader when the local Pokrovskoy priests, Peter Ostrumov and Fyodor Shemagin, denounced him. Ostrumov and Shemagin, you don't need to keep up with all these names. If yeah, if you feel yeah. <laughs> there's no pressure here. There's gonna be so many guys denouncing Rasputin. These particular guys. Yeah, they're just there's a long list here. So Ostrumov and Shemagin were very likely put off by the competition Rasputin was offering as a spiritual leader in his hometown, particularly after he became a spiritual advisor to the Romanovs. But Bishop Anthony's investigation found no fault in Rasputin. To the contrary, the bishop ended up praising Rasputin for his strict observance of church rites and his attention to the icons. Yep. So that, that plan backfired. The after his the priest also what? got in trouble too because it was like Rasputin's great, but dude, you're you're not. You're doing some bad things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they caught him out in the middle of the investigation while we're looking into people here. Right. After his pilgrimages, Rasputin planned to start a career in the nearby city of Kazan on the banks of the Volga River. Oh, there it is, Our Lady of Kazan. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I guess that was the major city, right. so the version of Kazan. All right. At Kazan, he was regarded as a star. I write these episodes. Bree did the research. Like, we did this months ago, <laughs> yeah, so. we did. We forget, we forget yeah. some of this stuff. At Kazan, he was regarded as a staretz, or staretz. You know how, to, how we pronounce that, staretz? I'm trying, I, I, it was that, there was another word that was like that, that I was like, I don't really know how you say that, because it's written, written weird, but I would say star, staretz. Staretz. Yeah. So uh, this word means a spiritual teacher who offered prayers and religious instruction. And, and I imagine that in his lifetime, Rasputin was mostly called to his face a Staretz, or even, you know, behind his back, people would call him the Staretz or a Staretz. At Kazan, Rasputin also came by his reputation as a sex maniac, honestly. He stared intently into women's eyes to intuit about them and analyze them. He gave the people who sought his advice nicknames. The men were Fancy Pants or Fella, and the women were Boss Lady or Sexy Girl. You know what? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. 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 Just like that old biology professor uh, whose who's class you, you can't forget. Uh, is that Boss just me? Lady a biology professor. Girl. He didn't give people nicknames, but he made the cute girl sit in the front row. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a little too on the nose, a little too obvious, this behavior. Yeah. He, he even had a liaison with two sisters, ages 20 and 15, at a bathhouse, reportedly telling the girl's mother uh, on the girls leaving the bathhouse with him that she could feel at peace, for the girls had found their salvation. <sighs> yikes, Rasputin, yikes. Rasputin's wife was understanding of his dalliances. Let me say one more time, the real hero of this episode. She really is. Like, <laughs> she's keeping everything together. <laughs> this, yeah, brick house of a peasant woman. Mm -hmm. uh, she considered Rasputin's sexual appetites and pursuit of pleasure a spiritual ordeal that he was pe perpetually wrestling with and subsumed it under her view of her husband as a holy man. So the next time your wife catches you looking at another woman, just explain that it's your spiritual ordeal, or girlfriend, or I'm show them a spiritual ordeal if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, honey, I wasn't checking her out. I'm just dealing with my spiritual ordeal. It's like the the meme where it's like the boyfriend's looking at the other girl while he's walking with his girlfriend, except it's Rasputin and it's God, like in one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a spiritual ordeal. It's his wife and yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no, that's not a thong in my backseat. That's my spiritual ordeal. That's my spiritual ordeal. <laughs> Come on. Understand me. Oh, God. Extramarital sex, his wife believed, was Rasputin's burden. He also grew his reputation as a wonder worker. A woman fell into a depression bordering on insanity and was raving and inconsolable after losing two of her children, but she became totally serene after only 30 minutes with Rasputin. Rasputin impressed Andrew, the Bishop of Kazan, and Andrew arranged to introduce him to some of the churches in St. Petersburg. In both Kazan and St. Petersburg, Rasputin discovered a culture enthralled to occultism. And, and for those of you who are not geography nuts, I, I talk about Russia in uh, my Western culture class. And St. Petersburg, what's significant about St. Petersburg was be- built by Peter the Great to face Europe. It was the closest point, he, I guess, he, he liked in Russia to Europe. It's very close to the borders uh, with, with Europe as opposed to Moscow, which is where the capital had been um, and and was again after the imperial period. After So Peter moved the capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg when he built this place basically on a swamp, sort of like Washington, D.C. Mm. And then he uh, and then the capital was moved by the communists again back to Moscow. So <laughs> fun geographical fact. <laughs> So, uh, in both Kazan and St. Petersburg, Rasputin discovered, uh, as I said, a culture enthralled to occultism. Helena Blavatsky's theosophy had spread through the social classes, and mystics, mediums, and psychics abounded. I think I might be on a roll of mentioning her in nearly every every one of the last ten episodes. It makes episodes. sense. She's literally come <laughs> up in everything that I've read that you have given me, I'm pretty sure. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, she's she's Ukrainian, right? So, she's... She's right there. She's everywhere. Um, she's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> she's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, she's a part of this culture. Yeah. She sought at, he sought out John of Kronstadt, uh, Rasputin, that is, an archpriest and healer who had prayed beside the bed of the dying Tsar Alexander III. John of Kronstadt established a house of industry that had served 40,000 people with meals for the poor, a hostel for travelers, and opportunities for the poor to earn money. He conducted mass confessions that prompted a frenzied response in his congregations and claimed to be able to heal the sick and raise the dead. It's a little bit like the revival culture in the U.S., yeah. this, these mass confessions, but, but an Orthodox, now an Eastern Orthodox variant. I of, would have loved to uh, see that. <laughs> yeah, what, a, what an idea. Yeah. So Nicholas II was a fan of the anti-communist priest John of Kronstadt and had appointed him to the Holy Synod. Rasputin shared his visions with the priest, and John of Kronstadt recognized Rasputin as a man who had spoken with God. John offered him membership with the True Men of Russia. That's a capital true, capital men of capital Russia. Mm-hmm. This was an anti-revolutionist group formed to give support to the Tsar. So there's revolution in the air. People are talking about, let's end this imperial monarchy. Let's have you know some kind of democratic situation. And the True Men of Russia are the monarchists, the loyalists. The Orthodox hierarchy in St. Petersburg were similarly impressed with the Siberian healer with the long hair and the beard. So that image you have in your head of Rasputin, 100% true. Yeah. Big hairy guy. Yes. <laughs> he could have been a... He's like, he looks like a biker kind of, doesn't he? He like, kind of <laughs> does. If you were to like throw him in like some... Some I'm saying some leather, and I was like, "Well, that's gonna go a different way." If you were to throw him in like a biker uniform and give him a Harley, would make sense. You could like if you cross like a like a by like a a Hell's Angel from the 1960s with you know one of those uh, Indian guru loving hippies. Yes, it's exactly that. That is exactly what he looks like. Bishop Sergei uh, invited Rasputin to stay at his house, where Rasputin remained until he befriended Theophan, an Orthodox archbishop and sometime confessor to the Tsar and Tsaritsa. Theophan introduced him to the Grand Duchess Milica, who in turn introduced him to the imperial rulers of Russia, Nicholas and Alexandra. 
Rasputin impressed the Tsar on first meeting him, but there was an eight-month gap before he saw the Romanovs again, so it wasn't like love at first sight. <laughs> yeah, it really wasn't. <laughs> there, this eight-month gap was probably because he was visiting his home village in Siberia, so he met the Romanovs, and then he had to go home and check on his wife and stuff, and I don't know, hopefully give her some money. Yeah. While away, the Tsaritsa Alexandra, who was enamored of healers and holy men, uh, parted company with the French mystic Philippe Nachot, who told her that someday she would have another friend like him. And she would, in time, come to understand this prophesied friend as none other than Grigory Rasputin. When Rasputin returned, he became the Tsarevich Alexei's healer. Alexei suffered from hemophilia, and after he injured himself falling, Rasputin prayed for him, and the religiously fervent Tsaritsa Alexandra believed Rasputin had healed him, and in this way, he earned the trust of the Romanovs. Now, we're going to break there, um, and we'll, we'll, move, we'll catch up again at the next episode, but just a little bit of, like, you know, the this scenario here. Alexei, the Tsarevich... Uh, this is next in line to the throne. We got a bunch of uh, girls, right, in the Romanov yeah. family. And Alexei is he's this is it. He's the guy. He's going to replace Nicholas II one day. But my man is in bad shape. He's not an especially healthy kid. And he's sick a whole lot um because of his hemophilia. Hemophilia. So, uh do you want to add anything to that, I, that history um... agree? There's a lot, there's a lot of political intrigue that I had to read about in this book. Um, and in um, the, uh, one of the other documents you gave me that was basically like, uh, it reported on a report that was done as an investigation into uh, like the claims against Rasputin and like the true reason why the Romanovs fell. And that report actually very much was like, yo. know, the Romanovs were kind of doomed from the start because Alexei was, or, um, not Alexei. I can't, I think, Nicholas, thank you. <laughs> I was like, I can't think of his father's yeah. name. Uh, Bizarre, yeah. He was, uh, too soft hearted compared to the previous rulers and, um, his internal court and his internal, like, uh, bureaucracy was pretty much ruling against him and the weird, seeping in of um um freemasonry oh my god i can i can't think right uh, now yeah freemasonry yeah it's that's a, right you did read an article about that it's a huge yeah. part of this the freemasons basically are the sole contributors to uh rasputin's part in the fall of the romanovs um, so the, the Freemasons are boosting him up or they're they, telling stories about him to the public? They are trying to destroy Rasputin's reputation as much as possible because it directly would destroy uh, Nicholas's and also make Nicholas doubt Rasputin and then separate them and cause a bunch of other stuff to happen. Yeah, it is a whole So thing. in this case, the Freemasons are literally conspiring to bring down the government. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. How often do you see that when the Freemasons are actually to blame for something? It's wild. It was such a weird read because <laughs> in the other report, that's very like a non-biased report because it's like a reporting of a report of the investigation, and it's like surprisingly, Rasputin actually like wasn't that bad, guys. It was all these Freemasons that were like, ah, let's uh, get rid of the soft ruler. Yeah, I'm open to that. I mean, it, it was a lot of PR issues yeah. for Nicholas II. I, and he arguably was not a very, I don't think arguable. I think most people agree he was not the strongest of leaders. No. Uh, his predecessors had been much strong. Not all of them, but he had predecessors in his immediate right. line. His father, his grandfather, I think particularly his grandfather, who were yeah. much stronger Iron Fist kind of rulers. Yeah. Nicholas II was he, not one of those. He had Nicholas good the ideas. First, right? He had great ideas in, yeah. in trying to preserve the good parts of like Russian culture and stuff like that, and you know, trying to do good things. But the people didn't want that. They wanted Freemasonry that were around him. Like there was a lot of people around him directly <laughs> that were like, "Yeah, but like maybe we shouldn't do that because we want to be in charge." 
So. Yeah, and there was this new, new sort of democratic government yeah. operating on the side of him, and what was his relation to that? And it, it was there was a lot of power itself was dissipating, mm-hmm. so he was in the wrong place at the wrong time either way. And, and some of those books, or the article in this book, even dispute the fact that Alexei might not have even had hemophilia, which was interesting for me to read because there was no actual documentation of hemophilia anywhere around Alexei, which would make sense because they would not want it documented that he had hemophilia as a... Well, it would weaken Nicholas's position, exactly. right? I mean, to, to get back to the initial point that, that we're making here, I mean, Rasputin's relationship is with Alexandra primarily, but it's about Alexei. Uh, and Alexei, if, if you think about Nicholas II as this ruler sort of on a knife's edge, whose his power is never quite secure nothing secures a monarch's power quite like having a successor right and so alexi's health issues further i mean as Bree's saying that the the cloud of uncertainty around nicholas ii and rasputin makes this cloud even darker and, and deeper and scarier and, and it just sort of goes on and on right Alrighty, uh, so we're going to call it quits there for part one of Rasputin. We're going to come back next time uh, with the exciting conclusion. Rasputin is going to meet his very unusual end. Uh, but before he does that, we're going to cover all the intrigue and, and politics because he's just getting into the Romanov court now. Yeah, I was ranting to my mother for like an hour one day. I came downstairs and she was like, what's wrong? I guess I looked upset and I just like ranted for an hour about Russian political court intrigue. So, <laughs> what, what, what a day in the literal house. Yeah, she just took it like a champ, though. She was like, interesting, tell me more. And I was like, thank you so much, Annette. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. We will catch you next time here on A Call Confessions. Bye.